So my, as I look back, my journey to Christ was it's definitely, I'd say, an interesting one. Um, I grew up in a church that was, as I've probably said before, very conservative. Um, you might even argue, I might argue, borderline legalistic. So as a kid, you know, this is, again, kids view the world through a different set of lenses. But as a kid, I felt like everything I did was being critiqued by the church. Now, the reality was, you know, I was a pretty active kid. Um, so, uh, you know, so they probably had every right in the world to critique everything I did because I probably did a lot of things that deserved critiquing. But, you know, I grew up with this view. I don't know if it was because of that, but I grew up with this view of God where it was more about the things I couldn't do, like the things I wasn't allowed to do, as opposed to actually, you know, a relationship with him. So if you asked me as a kid to gauge my walk with Christ, I would look at, okay, am I doing these things? Am I not doing these things? Like where, how's the list going? Like that, that's just how I would have viewed it. Um, as opposed to like an actual relationship. So even though I went to church, I didn't read my Bible. I didn't pray. I didn't really study his word because for me, that wasn't the goal. The goal was making sure I didn't do anything on that proverbial list of things that Christians aren't supposed to do. And I don't really know where that list is. If you find it, let me know. Um, but you know, for someone like me as a child who was not walking with the Lord, I wouldn't say I was actively walking with him. It's impossible it's impossible to live that life. Like it's impossible not to screw up and trip. I mean, it's hard enough when you're walking with him and you're praying and you're pursuing him and you're walking with the spirit. But when you're not doing any of those things, I mean, it's just a really tough place, especially when you're gauging your walk based on how well you're doing, you know, on, on this list of things. And so somewhere around high school, I was like, you know what? This is ridiculous. So I just dropped the charade and I went the other way. Like I stopped trying. And for the next eight to 10 years, I did my own thing. And as I, as I look back on that time, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me to see how the Lord was continually doing things to draw me back to him. Like the same took place before I became a believer. It was drawing me to him. And so as I look back on that eight to 10 years, you know, there were circumstances, there were friendships, there were heartaches and, you know, comments that were made, friends that came in my life. I mean, God was doing things to pursue me just like he does with you when you're walking the wrong way. I mean, that's, that's, that's what he was doing. And so eventually I came back and you know, I kind of finally understood, I guess, what it meant to have a relationship with the Lord, like what that looked like. Okay. So I came back, I started going to church, but this time I started reading my Bible. I started praying, you know, and honestly, if you were to ask me, I'd, you know, I felt like I was doing pretty good for a few years. Um, but the problem was, and I, I'm not blaming this on my upbringing, but the problem was I was still very skeptical about the church. I was skeptical about, you know, God's people. And I, I went to church during that time, but I didn't trust people. Like, I, I just didn't trust them. And I, I distinctly remember this moment where I realized I couldn't go any further without other believers. Like, I I'd hit a ceiling on my own. I just couldn't go any, like, you know, I can grow in knowledge doing it by myself, but it is impossible to fully live out all that God has for you if you're not doing it with other people. Impossible. And the reason I say that is because you can't demonstrate the love of God to other people if you're not around other people. Right? You, when God says, go love people, well, if you're not around people, how can you love them? 
Like you can't do it by yourself. You can't be patient or kind or gentle without people around you to be patient to. You can't share your faith or bear each other's burdens if there's no one around you that you can bear burdens with. I mean, it's just a fact. There's only so far you can go on your own. And I'm not even talking about your family because I feel like you're going to love them. I mean, you're going to have your issues, but you're kind of supposed to love your family. And so, but when it comes to the body of Christ, it's a totally different story. And for me, you know, it, it was just, it was tough you know, loving fellow believers. It took me a while, but eventually I realized that I need to be around God's people. Now, keep in mind, I was going to church every week. You know, I'd kind of turn my life back around. I was going to church every week, but church attendance isn't the same thing. And I I kind of liken it to your job. There are people you work with every day that you know pretty well. You, You know their names, you know their kids' names, you know what they did over the weekend. You know where they went on vacation. Like you you know things about them, but you've never done anything with them outside of work. And so it's a, it's sort of a surface level relationship and you spend 40 hours with them. Some of you more. And so that's, it's just, it's the reality. And then you come to Creekside and you see people for two hours and it's, you know, and I finally, I think I realized that there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. We would all agree. There's a difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing someone. I think that's what finally woke me up. I've been going, listen to this. I've been going to a Sunday service at that, at that church for three years, and I didn't know a single person. Three years. And it really had nothing to do with the size of the church. I could come here for three years, and if I really wanted to, not know anybody. And so, I mean, it, not know one person. Now, one person in the whole church knew my name. Now, I'm introverted by nature, so part of that's my own fault. Maybe I should have come before the church started. Maybe I should stop leaving during the last, you know, I mean, there's, there's things I probably did. There's things I probably did that contributed to that, but not one person in the church knew my name. And when I, when I was studying, I was thinking about it, like, do you think that's what the Lord had in mind when he created the church? Come in, slip out, leave out the back door. And it's, it's not. And I felt like the Lord was saying, all right, great job. We got to fix this. Like you're doing okay on your own, but we got, we got to take it to the next level. So I decided I was going to go to a, a small group. I was going to give it a shot. And I went and it was good. There was quality teaching. I remember they broke us up in these little groups of five or six people. We kind of discussed what was being taught, the passage. We prayed and we left. And there was, I wouldn't say there was anything riveting about that particular group. But I remember as I was leaving, one of the guys came up to me, and I still remember this, still remember what he was wearing. He came up to me and he was like, hey, um, you know, how'd you hear about this? What are you doing here? Tell me about yourself. And we talked for maybe five minutes. He got my number. He's like, well, if we ever do anything, I'll call you. And then I left. He left. I really honestly didn't even think anything of it, except I was walking to the parking lot and he called me and he was like, hey, a couple of us are going to go to lunch. Do you want to go to lunch with us? And I went. And in one hour, of lunch with those guys, I felt more connected to the body of Christ than I did in three years of sermons. Does that, does that make sense? Like, I'm not saying the sermons weren't beneficial, and I'm not saying the sermons didn't prepare my heart for the conversations I had that day with those guys. Like, I absolutely believe they were critical to my growth. However, it made me realize that I need both. Like if I was truly going to be a witness for him, like we learned in Acts chapter one, 
I needed two things. I needed a relationship with him, a genuine relationship with him, unlike what I had as a kid, where there was really no relationship. It was just me trying to do things. So I needed a relationship with him. I needed to walk with him every day, and I needed the body of Christ. Like no if, ands, or buts. So today as we dive into Acts chapter 2, it's a, it's a pretty amazing picture as you're kind of studying the whole passage. We have a lot of scripture reading. I'm going to kind of read through Peter's sermon almost in one shot. But what we see in Acts chapter 2, you see, first of all, the long-awaited Holy Spirit descends on humanity. Like this has been waiting. People were waiting for the Holy Spirit for not only the disciples in the upper room, but they had been waiting for the Holy Spirit for a really long time. And so the Holy Spirit descends on humanity. And immediately what we saw promised in chapter 1 happened. They started being witnesses for Christ. They were witnesses to what they had seen. But we also see a different aspect of the Holy Spirit. We immediately see a supernatural ability to love one another, to care for one another, and the desire to do life with the body of Christ. Like there's no, in my mind, there's no disconnect by we see the Holy Spirit coming. We see the Peter bearing witness, the disciples bearing witness. And then immediately you see a little passage at the end of chapter two, where they had everything in common. They were selling what they need. They, they were devoted to prayer. They were, I mean, it's, it's, that's not there by accident. So you see kind of these two aspects of the Holy Spirit right off the bat. And, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that living and doing life with people isn't frustrating. It's not, you know, it's not perfect, but God desires community. That's why he made the body of Christ. Everybody has different gifts and different skill sets. We need each other. And I think we saw the beginning of that in chapter one. At the end, you had 120 people in the upper room and they were devoted to each other. They were praying. I mean, we read a lot about that, but now they're still in the upper room. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit like Jesus instructed. And now the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So we're going to stop and kind of break this up a little. So the Jews have seven feasts every year. You can read about those feasts in Leviticus 23, if you want to kind of read through the feasts. But they have seven major feasts, or actually seven feasts, three of them are major. And these were all kind of handed out at Mount Sinai. God went through this when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai. Um, the three major feasts are Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason they're major is because every Jew does a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for these feasts. So the name Pentecost actually is derived from the Greek word meaning 50. So Pentecost is, is 50 days after Passover. Now, Passover is the time when Christ was crucified. So it's 50 days after Passover. And it's, it's right before, or excuse me, right after the barley harvest right before the wheat harvest, they come to Jerusalem, they have a celebration. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's like Mardi Gras without all the shenanigans. I mean, there's a lot of Gasparilla without the shenanigans. I mean, there's just, it's a big, it's a big celebration. There's a lot of food, there's festivities. I mean, that's what's happening right now in Acts chapter two in Jerusalem. That, that is the scene. Most scholars believe there would be probably a couple hundred thousand, if not a million people in Jerusalem for this feast. There are people like from all over the place. Um, I have a map that just shows, because I love maps, how far some of these had traveled. And we're going to read these passages later in chapter two, but there's Jerusalem right there where the circle is. And people had come from as far as Rome. 
I mean, this was a pilgrimage feast. They all came in. So, I mean, that's, that's what's happening. The festivities are going down. The disciples are in the upper room and they're waiting. Verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it's, I always try to put myself in the shoes of the people we're reading about, and I can't even fathom what that was like. Like, it's just, I, I can't fathom what it must have been like to be in that room, kind of, you've seen Jesus do hundreds, if not thousands of miracles during the two to three year ministry that he had on earth. And now you're waiting in the upper room. You've been crying out to the Lord, probably for a month would be my guess. Give us your Holy Spirit, guide us, lead us. I mean, this is what they're doing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it says the Holy Spirit rushes in the room like a mighty wind and tongues of fire fall on each one of them. Right, you just I don't, your mind might be more imaginative than mine, but I, I can't really picture that. And the Holy Spirit, to me, it's always been—he's always been such a unique member of the Trinity, because I think our tendency for some of us, especially if you grew up in a conservative background, maybe like I did, let's just pretend he doesn't exist, okay? Like let's pretend the Holy Spirit doesn't exist, and then sometimes on the other side of things, he's the only one that exists. Right? He's everything. Everything. So, and there's, there's this, as you always see in scripture, there's this, they work in tandem. The Holy Spirit, the Trinity works in tandem, each having their unique characteristics and traits. And, you know, I, I think it's important that we understand that the Holy Spirit has been there from the very beginning. Like this is the Holy Spirit was anticipated, prophesied about for almost a thousand years. People were waiting for the day when God would pour out his spirit. And so it's, it's hard, you know, I think for some of us to understand, we've always heard, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Oh yeah, you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Well, for these guys in this room, this was a big deal. Like it was, it was a mind-blowing event. And if you go all the way back to the beginning, you know me, I like to kind of walk you through things. So the Holy Spirit has been there since the very beginning. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think we tend to be so intrigued with these opening verses and the fact that the the earth is coming into being that you can really easily miss the fact that it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Like the Holy Spirit was there when the earth was formed, when the animals were made. On that last day of creation, when Adam and Eve were made, were formed, were created, when Adam was created, like the Holy Spirit was there. And then as you kind of fast forward and go through, you see a really amazing picture of God's fellowship with Adam and Eve at the garden. God walks with them. He talks with them. He has fellowship with them. Like God literally dwells with Adam and Eve. And they had one command. Their one command was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's almost like God saying, look, I want this relationship with you. I desire for you to come to me for guidance, come to me for wisdom. I will tell you the knowledge of good and evil. Like come to me, interact with me, have a relationship with me. But as we know from scripture, they decided to go a different way. And because of that, the fellowship that they once had with God, that intimacy with the creator was gone. 
Like people, they were kicked out of the garden and people are born at a distance from God. But the amazing thing is in Genesis 3, you immediately see God put a plan in place to once again kind of reconnect with humanity, if you will, for humanity to once again live in the presence of God, to walk with him once again. And so as you read through the Old Testament, you see little glimpses of what that might look like, like God dwelling with his people. Now, if you go to Mount Sinai, God gives the 10 commandments at Mount Sinai. Okay. And Moses is the only one who can even come close to God. I mean, we if you think of the garden and the interaction that Adam and Eve had with God, and then you go to Mount Sinai and you read the verses about Mount Sinai, it's like night and day. All right, listen to Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. It's actually kind of terrifying. Like if you were sitting at Mount Sinai, I'm sure it would have been a little scary. But every time you read about the presence of God in scripture after the garden, that's what you see. You see something very similar to that. And at Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments. All right, God starts walking through the law. But they also, God also tells them to build the tabernacle. Like God wants to dwell with his people, but because of sin, he can't. So he wants them to build a tabernacle, kind of like a portable temple, where they, he could actually dwell with them in the Holy of Holies. So this is what he does. And something really interesting happens. He puts his spirit inside of a few people to guide them and give them incredible skill to complete this construction of the tabernacle. This is what it looks like. It's pretty intricate. And verse three of Exodus 31 says, and I have filled them with what? The spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood to work at every craft. And it's pretty amazing because this random guy, he's not random to God, but this random guy suddenly gets the spirit of God placed in him. And now he has this incredible ability to carry out the work of the Lord. Like it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. Never have, you know, you had seen maybe the spirit of God descend on certain, but it's just, this was, this was incredible. You ever seen a child prodigy? even if it's on YouTube, playing the violin, playing the piano, something like that. I mean, that, that's the idea. They sit down and everyone just sits in awe. Everyone's like, how is this kid doing this? And if you trace the word prodigy, it's actually derived from where we get our word miracle because there's no other way to describe what is taking place except that God is doing something miraculous. Like it's, you can't even fathom it. And that's the imagery you get anytime God dwells in his people. And then as you walk through the rest of the Old Testament, you see more instances of God putting his spirit inside particular individuals. Okay, it happens to King Saul, it happens to King David, then it happens to King Solomon. And you fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 8, we see God once again dwell with his people. All right, Solomon has just finished building the temple, and the temple is just a permanent tabernacle. Right, the tabernacle they moved around in the desert. The temple is like a permanent tabernacle. And we're getting kind of a bird's eye view. There's the temple of the opening ceremonies. This is probably the pinnacle of Old Testament Israel. 
under Solomon. David kind of conquered all these lands, and then Solomon takes him to the you know, riches beyond imagination. First Kings 8, 5, and King Solomon, now picture this scene. And all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the Lord finally has the temple, which is kind of like a, a more permanent dwelling place among his, among his people. And if you look at that picture, this was not a church building. No one is even allowed inside because God would rest. He would dwell among his people there in the Holy of Holies. Only the priest would go in once a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. He would go in and scholars say, even then they would like put a rope around his ankle with bells. And if he, if he did something he wasn't supposed to do and God struck him down, they could actually pull him out by the rope that was attached to his ankles. Like that was the, that was how God dwelled among his people. And it's, I mean, it's just a, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. And then as far as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, God would put his spirit in people to enable them to either lead, to prophesy, or to perform a particular task. Like common folk, like you and me, it wasn't happening. I mean, at least, at least from what I read in scripture, it was mostly prophets and kings and particular people. It just, God's spirit at that time was not available to everybody. That sin was, that barrier was there and you, it just wasn't, wasn't available. And if you know your Old Testament, probably a hundred years after, after the temple was dedicated, the people of Israel turn away and they worship other gods. And they're sent into exile. And there's a, there's a passage in Ezekiel, we're not gonna read it for time, where you actually get a picture of the cloud leaving the temple. Like God's presence is literally going up in the air and leaving the temple. And the, the interesting thing is, if you read through the prophets, here's the thing, even in their disobedience, God is telling the prophets during this time that there would be a day when he would return. And that's kind of why, why this is important to Acts. All right, Isaiah 44, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So not only would they come out of exile, but God's spirit would return. And not just to a couple people, but to all people. Joel 2, 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, if you're, if you're a Jewish person during this time and you're reading these prophecies, you probably know very little about the spirit of God. I mean, because you just haven't experienced the spirit of God I mean, you just maybe read about it in the Torah and read about it in certain places. But, and this is 800 years before Christ would come. And so if you fast forward to the New Testament, the Jews are back in Jerusalem. The exile is over. I mean, Rome is ruling Jerusalem at the time of the New Testament, but the Jews are back in Jerusalem and we have zero evidence that God's presence has ever come back to the temple. Like we, you just, you don't have any evidence of that. The people are waiting. And as we know from the Christmas story, they're not only waiting for God to return and dwell among them, but they're also waiting for a savior. In their minds, a king, 
like somebody who's going to deliver them from the Romans. And so as the New Testament opens, they actually get both. John 1, and the word, talking about the creator, became flesh. And this is really important, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. All right, it's, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing to me that the savior, like the creator of the world, came and dwelt, considering everything you see in the Old Testament, how God interacts and dwells with his people through clouds and fire and hovering over the tabernacle and hovering over the temple. And like, they can't even see him at Mount Sinai. Like only Moses could even see his back. And, and now the creator comes and dwells among creation. And it's, and that glory dwells in Jesus. Like they say it, he's full of grace, full of truth. We have seen his glory. Like he is God. He's essentially a walking temple, right? I mean, prior to this, the glory of God was only seen in the temple. And now God is actually dwelling among his people. We have seen his glory. So Jesus walks the earth. He cares for people. He loves people. And he does things you just didn't do in those days. He goes around telling people their sins were forgiven. If you wanted forgiveness for your sins, you had to go where? The temple. And you had to offer a sacrifice. And the priest would say, okay, you know, your sins are forgiven. But now Jesus just looks at people and says, your sins are forgiven. And then he goes to the actual temple and he starts turning over tables and kicking people out of the temple. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. I think the disciples, you know, are, are kind of beginning to realize that, you know, the temple is becoming obsolete and Jesus is actually the temple. And so right before the cross, Jesus tells them the Holy Spirit is coming. And this is leading us into Acts. And here's what Jesus says right before the cross. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Why? for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And the helper would guide them and encourage them and help them and empower them. And Paul actually tells the church at Corinth sometime later in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, do you not know that you, he's talking to the church, are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you. All right, now, now, Stop and think about that for a second. It's actually kind of mind-blowing when you realize that in all of the Old Testament, from the beginning of time until the New Testament at Pentecost, where we are in Acts 2, we only have record maybe a couple dozen folks being filled with the Spirit. I mean, I, I don't know. And now at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God, because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit is available to all humanity. Like everyone who believes and the, and the goal of the spirit is like to, to empower people, to convict people. I mean, it's, it's almost as if Jesus was right next to you. So just like the men at the tabernacle would be given extraordinary work to build the tabernacle. These disciples were given that same extraordinary power to teach and to preach. And every one of us gets that as well to fulfill like the spiritual gifts that you're given. I mean, these are extraordinary 
gifts. And I think sometimes we, we kind of forget about them. So at Pentecost, with a million people in town for Pentecost to celebrate this feast, you have, I mean, all over the world, the disciples are given the ability to speak in other languages. And that's what we're going to read. We're going to read a lot of this passage right now. I'm going to skip a few verses for time. But this is Peter. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, like the sound of the Holy Spirit descending, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of his own native language, Parthians and Medes, and they go through all the people who are there. And all were amazed, verse 12, and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they are filled with the new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone, now this is key, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this is Peter at Pentecost. All these people are gathered. And now Peter, the same one who denied Christ three times, has the Holy Spirit, is the power, right? The, the power to overcome the fear. He's standing who knows where, preaching to all the people who can hear this long message about who Jesus really is. And then they respond, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, go to church every week for one hour and you will be fine. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but do you see how absurd that sounds? Um, just kidding. All right. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every one of you 
the Spirit is now available. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And I, I think, you know, when I, when I read Acts and I, and I look through Scripture and I'm studying this, I'm like, man, look what the Holy Spirit did here. Look what the Holy Spirit did. Here. Look how the Holy Spirit empowered them. And then I realized, wait a minute, I have the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes I just forget that. Like, do you believe that you have that same power in you? As a follower of Christ, do you believe that? And it's probably the more important question is, is it evident to those around you that you have the power of God in you? Like, do people look at my life and say, there's something there. There's something power. Like, I, I see Christ in him. Like, do I have a desire to love other people like Christ did? Do I have a desire to care for other people? Like, be a witness to what he did on the cross. Like these are the things that are going through my mind as I'm studying this. And for the disciples, the first thing they did was they bore witness. They stood up and preached. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The birth of the church. 3,000 souls, the spirit of God coming to empower believers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I can't even imagine being around those three over 3,000 people, all with the Holy Spirit inside of them. Like, I, I, I just can't even imagine. And I think not only did they bear witness, but they also did what we talked about at the beginning, which it gave them a supernatural ability to love each other and care about each other. Cause you see that in verse 42 and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Chapter two. So, you know, as we, as we kind of close and try to kind of walk our way through this, I want to highlight a couple aspects of the early church. I kind of want to just leave you with those as you leave today. Um, and the first thing I think we see very clearly is that they were devoted verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So I'm going to walk through each of those questions. Do you devote yourself to teaching? Like I know you're here, so you do to some extent, but do you, do you devote yourselves to teaching? They were meeting day by day. I'm not saying you have to meet day by day, but they were getting taught every day. Like they were, they were getting fed with the word of God. And maybe it was their own study. Maybe it was the study of others. But Christianity is a, for at least in our context, a word-based religion. God has given us his word, literally. And so we are taught from his word. And so the question I think is just, are you eager to be taught? Is this your only platform for being taught God's word every week? Because I think we need more than in, I mean, when I preach an hour, but I think we need more than this time frame. How about fellowship? They gave themselves to each other, to the people God had placed around them. I want you to look around this room. I want you to look around this room, seriously. Like when I look around this room from up here, God has 
blessed us beyond anything I could have ever imagined with the people we have at Creekside Church. Like this group right here, not so much the first service, but this group (laughs) right here, just kidding. Like this is seriously the sweetest, most amazing group of people I could ever have hoped to pastor. And here's the thing. I know your stories. I know your testimonies. Jake knows your stories. Jake knows your testimonies. But I would love nothing more than for you to live your lives together. Because that's really important. Let others experience what you have to offer. And this is, it's not a commercial for small groups. The Lord just kind of lined it up perfectly with when small groups were going to kick off. But here's the deal. I want you to be able to live out your faith. Like the reason I'm so transparent up here and just spill all my, my life stories out here is not because, you know, I got nothing better to say. It's because I want you to learn from where I have screwed up. I want, like, I feel like I have walked through life and God has helped me in certain areas and shame on me if I don't want to share those with you, if you're walking the same path. And one of the benefits of getting together, even if it's just a lunch or discipleship relationship or small groups, is that people can learn from each other. What have we done? You know, we're struggling here. I'm struggling at work. I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm like, so has everybody else in this room. And God has taken us through. And so you get to learn from each other. It's amazing to me how much we evaluate small groups based on what we get out of it. Like, I don't really want to do that. I don't know if I'm going to get much out of it. Here's the deal. The purpose of small groups isn't so much what you're going to get out of it as much as what you're going to give. You may not get anything out of it. But the benefit that you could give to other people is endless. Like if you've walked through this life and you're walking with the Lord and you're bam, 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 we're right here. Everything's great. Me and the Lord are like this. I don't need that small group. Well, other people need to be where you are. They need to learn from you. They need to see what you're doing. And so that's, that's why I think it's so important. That's why they were fellowshipping together all the time. I mean, our society, we evaluate things on what we get from them. And Jesus is like, that's not how it works. So they were devoted to teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread. And obviously we like to break bread, right? Um, but this is more communion than eating, okay? So their, their supper clubs, if you will, the way they ate together, um, they would have been very, very similar to, you know, our supper clubs are very similar maybe to how they gathered. But the breaking of bread, Luke's talking about communion. Like he's talking about gathering together to remember the cross and the resurrection. If you're not careful, if I'm not careful, Sundays can be more about a self-help can be a self-help session. Okay, just give me three things I can change about myself and we're good to go. And while there may be application in everything we teach, that's not the point. The point of Sunday is to look above yourself, above your circumstances and look to Christ. It's to remember the sacrifice that he made. Remember the cross, remember the resurrection. And I mean, there we can get together and learn things and we can get together and take things home that we can apply to our life. And the Holy Spirit is definitely gonna convict you in certain areas. And I want you to grow from that. But don't ever forget the reason we gather is to glorify the Lord. Like the reason we gather is to look to him and to encourage others to do the same. Because you might've had a great week and the person next to you, mm, not so much. And so we gather with other believers to encourage them. These people who were gathering together in the early church, man, some of their lives were a wreck. You had slaves in there. You had people that came from Rome and got all of a sudden got the Holy Spirit. Like I'm staying, I'm not going home. They had nothing. They had no job. They had no house. They had no nothing. 
and says people were selling what they had. Like, come on, live with me. That's not normal. That's an overflow of God working in your life, of the Holy Spirit moving in your life. Because you don't do those things if he's not moving and working. Verse 44, I think we just see that they, that they get it. Like this is evidence that they got it. Verse 44, and all who believed were together, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. I think evidence that the gospel has taken root in your life is a glad and generous heart. Like you just give of yourself and, 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 all kinds of different areas. And we, we're, we don't get there overnight. Like we grow into that. We see other people do it. They model it, but they found something that was more important than their comfort, more important than their money, even more important than their personal freedom. And it was Christ. And what's crazy is the church got really big. If it was the 120 people who were gathered around, you know, I think we might have a different take on, okay, well, they've been together for three years. They know what they're doing. We're talking 3000 people. It's just, it's tough. It's tough for them to do that. It's, it's the first mega church. And it's, I mean, it's a big deal because you can see how the Holy Spirit's working. And as, as we close, and as we walk through this book over the next six months, I want you to get a picture, just a beautiful picture of what the church is. Like what it looks like to be the church. And I'm not talking about some building because we're not identified by a building. I'm talking a group of people called out of society around a mission. They have a mission, a goal in mind. And I think our tendency as we read through this book over the next six months, it's going to assume that it was for a different era. Do I really have to be that devoted? Do I really have to pray that much? Do I really have to hang out with other Christians? Like, and one of the things I think that's fascinated me so much is when I read Acts, I know I'm not the only one, when I read Acts, and I love the book of Acts, and then I kind of look around, I'm like, hmm, like, it does, they don't, we don't look the same as they did. And so being a history, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that either. In our context, there's certain, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying we're doing it wrong. They just look different. And so for me, being kind of a history nut, I like to go figure out, all right, well, wh- where did it change? What happened? And so I'm gonna leave you like five minutes of history and then we're done of kind of the, the progression of the church. Um, so when the church started kind of right now, Acts chapter two to about 300 AD, the church was like a movement. There were no buildings. There were no places where people like big institutions where they gathered. It was a movement. It was a grassroots movement where they had home churches and these people came in when they all came to Pentecost, those who got saved, they all went back to their countries and their cities and they started sharing the word. And then Paul went on his missionary journeys, planted churches in different places. And I mean, that that's how the church spread. It was literally a movement. They would gather together in someone's house and they didn't have seminaries. So they would gather together in someone's house and they would have love feasts as they called them. And they were really just our supper clubs. But after the meal, they would, they would sing songs. They would share scripture. They would discuss theology. They would pray together. They would share communion. And in some cases, I mean, we're in the middle of the Roman Empire. So in some cases, if you had a really tolerant 
leader, they might let them meet in a small business of some sort or someone, maybe a little more larger home. But by and large, we're talking really, really small communities where people would gather because it just, it was, you're in Rome. It was illegal to worship anybody besides the emperor. But in AD 313, Constantine was emperor and he instituted something where he gave everybody religious freedom. It's a big change in the Roman Empire, right? That it didn't say you had to be a certain religion. He just gave everybody freedom of religion. Like you could worship whoever you wanted. And this was a really big deal because Christian persecution was really, really bad up until this time. And we're talking hundreds of years of death in the arena. And I mean, the Colosseum, I mean, these are just the things that were happening to Christians. And now you can technically be a Christian. And then something even more amazing happened. Constantine declared that he was a Christian. The emperor of the Roman Empire said that he was a Christian. And it, it really totally changed everything. All right, it's, it's, I mean, it's really mind-blowing to think that now it became fashionable to be a Christian. Like the powerful people in Rome, all of a sudden, wanted to be a Christian. And so they, they kind of brought their influence, if you will, into these house churches. And you started to see, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a lot of these, but they started to bring some of their pageantry and their incense and their ornate clothing and their processionals and their choirs and, and things that kind of had always been done in their little like worship worlds into the Christian church. And worship became very hierarchical and the congregation became spectators like you are, as opposed to kind of this interactive discussion. And really within 15 to 20 years, if you study the history of the church, within 15 to 20 years of that point, it ceased to be a movement because you could really just have freedom of worship. Why do I need to take it here? Why do I need to take it there? Like it just stopped. And it was no longer a group of people around one cause, worshiping the Lord who wanted to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It became a location. Like literally, it became a location. And the Romans called each of these places basilicas. The Germans called them kirches, K-I-R, kirches. And that's obviously where we get our word church. It was no longer like a grassroots movement built on Jesus. Now we thought of church as a place you went. Like up until that point, the church was the people. No one ever associated the church with the building. When you said the church, you were talking about followers of Christ, Christians. But now you kind of got, oh, it's more of a location. Let's go here. But and so that went on for a long time. You had the dark ages, the middle ages. I mean, people were illiterate a lot during those times. And there was no Bible in the common language. The kind of the peasant language of the time was English. There was no Bible written in English, none. And so you just kind of went and you had to be a spectator because you didn't understand anything that was being said. They were reading in Latin and all. I mean, you just, you didn't understand. That was the dark ages, the middle ages. And then the reformers came along and God raised up a reformer, which was key to the English called William Tyndale, right? And Tyndale had this conviction that if Christianity was going to get back to a movement, then the people had to understand the message. Not the message the, the, the church at the time was speaking, because we all know a lot of the nonsense that went down during the Middle Ages with the church. And so he's like, they have to have access to scripture. And obviously that infuriated the church leaders because they didn't want the common man to have access to the scriptures. And Tyndale was tried as a heretic and burned at the stake for that belief that everyone needed to have the word of God in their hand. And during this trial, right before he died, that's what he said. If God spares my life, ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow 
to know more of the scriptures than you do. And and as he was being burned, his last words were, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And obviously that happened. The Lord answered that prayer. If you had the King James Bible, that was the answer. That was the the translation of the, the word of God into the peasant language, the common language of the time. But here's, here's what I want you to understand. Here's why it's important. Here's why you would go through all that history. One, I like history. But um, Christianity in Acts is built around a movement. It's an assembly of people who gather together to encourage each other, to love one another, to bear each other's burdens. And they get regenerated, rejuvenated, and they take the gospel, and they go out and they bear witness. Like that's, that's what it is, a movement that is, is kind of shaped around the gospel. It's not shaped around a place. It's not shaped around a building. When we get to Newburger Road, that is not the church. You are the church. That's the place we meet, but we are the body of Christ. And every one of us who believes has his spirit inside of us to empower us to be witnesses. So we're going to ask questions over the next six months. And I'm going to put those up here right now. And here's the questions we're going to ask. Is Creekside Church simply a place that people attend? Is it a building where religious services happen? Or are we truly a part of a movement of God that's happening all over the world? Because that's what we want. And I think for you individually, I'll ask the same question. Is church simply a place that you attend or it is a movement that you're actually a part of. Let's pray.